Well, hi, church. Um, I was kind of loud. But um, if we haven't met yet, my name is Anse. And so for the past few weeks, uh, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, um, as Pastor Robert had mentioned. And so, um, it's, and so it's probably the most famous sermon um, in the history of the world. Jesus, he's up on a mountain. A crowd's come to him, and we've been going through his sermon so far. And so far, Jesus has just been really just upending their lives, their notion, their understanding of their whole Jewish faith at this time. Um, for the crowd um, at this time, who was mostly Jewish, um, their keeping the law was important to them. They referred to the Bible as the, prof- the law and the prophets. And for their faith, keeping the law was so important to them. And so far, uh, for the past few weeks, we've just been discussing about how Jesus, as he was preaching, he was essentially just teaching them that you think you've been teaching the law, or you think you've been obeying the law, you think you've been living a good life. But if you've had a single angry thought, if you've had a single lustful thought, if you've, had, if you've ever insulted someone just once, you've already broken the law. And I think for the hearers, um, I mean, that w- I, like, first off, I don't know how I would take that exactly, but I think it just kind of leads to just a natural question of, well, like, Jesus, what am I supposed to do now? I don't know if I can ever not have a single angry thought for the rest of my life, not have a single lustful thought, never insult someone again. Um, Jesus, what, what am I supposed to do now? And so as we come into Matthew chapter 6, Jesus' message so far has been, don't stop pursuing righteousness. Don't stop trying to obey the law, but do it correctly. Do it humbly. Pursue it with humility. And so, we've, and so we talked so far about when you give, don't make a big show of it, but give humbly. And when you pray, pray humbly. And so, and so this morning, um, we're, we're talking about, and when you fast, fast humbly. And so um, probably for a lot of us, fasting is probably not that common of a concept. I mean, I'm sure giving um, and praying are fairly familiar um, just in our Christian world. Fasting, maybe not as much. I mean, I know we're in Austin. How crazy. I'm sure someone here knows about intermittent fasting if you're not doing it. I I was just talking with my mom, actually, this past week, and she's been doing intermittent fasting, too. So it's like a new craze these days. And so I think the world is, I think the world in general, they're familiar with the concept of fasting. But as a religious practice, like maybe not so much. Um, And so uh, as we start this morning, we're just going to do a little bit of background work in terms of what is fasting in general. Um, Is fasting in the Bible? And then as we move forward, we'll we'll talk about what are some of the dangers in fasting, as well as what is their ultimate reward in fasting. Uh, So as we start, I think it's probably good to just go ahead and define fasting. And so a good working definition of fasting is, um, at least in the Bible, is to temporar- temporarily refrain or abstain from something that is otherwise good, uh, generally food or drink. Um, and so, in case you didn't know what, what fasting is, here's your definition. Um, and so, I guess just as we start here, just a couple of quick notes. Fasting is not 
um, stopping something that's bad or stopping something that's sinful, like, I don't think you can really say, I think I need to fast from illegal drugs. I think I need to fast from, you know, I think in that case, that would just be repentance um, and just obeying the law. Maybe you could call that a permanent fast. But in general, fasting is going to be something that's otherwise good. So in general, food, food is good. Drink, drink is great as well. And then there's other things as well, gifts that God has given us. And fasting is going to be, I recognize that this is a good thing, but voluntarily, I'm going to temporarily for a set time, I'm going to set that aside. Um, I'm going to temp- temporarily set that aside for a greater purpose, um, to get something else. I'm going to take something away so that I can fill that with something else, um, which we'll get into. Um, and so... Um, that's fasting, so I think just a good, good question is, do we see fasting in the Bible? And so, because um, I think in this, we, we just want to really make sure that fasting isn't just a concept that I made up or Pastor Robert made up, but it's a practice that Christians have done really since the Old Testament, um, all the way from the beginning. And so, uh, if we can go, um, this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but just a couple of quick instances that we see fasting. So we, see, we first see fasting way in the, book, uh, way in the beginning, um, the second book of the Bible, on the book of Exodus, Moses. Um, he's going through the wilderness. God invites him up a mountain to spend some time with him. And then it says that Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and nights, and that during that time he was without food and without drink. And as he was fasting on that mountain, spending that time with God, that's when God met him and gave him um, tablets for the Ten Commandments. Um, and again, not an exhaustive list, but we see Queen Esther, before she approaches the, the king of Persia because she discovers an awful plot, she asks the Jewish nation to fast on her behalf. Um, we see the same thing in, ne- in Nehemiah's life, um, also in the Old Testament. Before he approaches the king of Persia, um, a different king um, at a different time, um, he fasts privately before he has a big request to make before the king. He spends some time mourning and fasting privately and fasting secretly. Um, then, and, and then, of course, uh, we see it in the life of Jesus that literally right before the Sermon on the Mount, where in chapter 6, um, he started in chapter 5, and chapter 4, right before he starts his ministry, he fasts for 40 days. And so we see it all throughout the Bible. Um, and so... I think, so you see it kind of all throughout the Bible. And so I think for, um, I think another question would be for the people in that day, like maybe these are just like extraordinary circumstances for really holy people like Queen Esther or Nehemiah. You know, was fasting done by everyday Jewish people, like the people that he was preaching to. And so I think we see fasting in the life of, fasting in the Jewish life. And so for the people that Jesus was preaching to, what was their understanding of fasting? And so in their Jewish life, um, they had a big national day of fasting um, on the Day of Atonement. And so this was um, set up in the Old Testament. And so at least one day a year, the whole nation, in their act of atonement and in, in their act of repentance, they would spend the whole day sundown to sundown in complete fasting. And so 
And then as time went on, um, and then it, it, it kind of just depends on the time of period of history that you're looking at. But as time went on, they added more and more fasts. Um, some of them are to remember historical events that had happened. Some of them are when wars are happening, they said, all right, for the next couple of years, I think we just need to fast. So this is not an exhaustive list, but these are just examples that I've, uh, I've found in the Jewish life. But I think I just wanted to get a picture and an understanding of for the crowd that Jesus was preaching to, what was their understanding of fasting? And for them, fasting was really familiar. At the very least, they were fasting once a year. And, on, and honestly, they were probably fasting a lot more than that. And for the really holy people, the Pharisees um, that Jesus is talking to, they said that they were fasting twice a week, which is an awful lot. But, um, and so fasting throughout the Bible, and the Jewish nation is also fasting, I think a fair question would be, well, for us in year 2023, you know, for Ridge, for Ridge Top Church, are we still expected to fast? I mean, was this just an Old, old Testament thing, or like, does Jesus still want us to fast? And so, yeah, so this is where we get into our passage. And so um, as we read through the passage, the very first words that Jesus starts off with is, and when you fast. And I, I kind of just wanted to take a moment and just pause here and just think about, and when you fast. He doesn't say, you know, if you fast, or if you're feeling really spiritual and really holy, and you receive a special word from God, and God calls you up a mountain, and he says, you need to fast. It's just, and when you fast. And this also comes after, uh, this is in the third series of uh, Jesus saying, and when you pray, and when you give, and when you fast. Um, it's almost like, in Jesus' mind, it's just a given that when he's thinking about the Christian life, that it's just kind of a given that his people will fast. And so, if you think about the Christian life, I just have a quick question for us. Like, when you think about the Christian life, if someone were to ask you, what does the Christian life look like? I mean, for how many of us, honestly, um, if someone were to ask you, for Muslim people, I know that they fast and they pray five times a day, they go to Mecca, that's my understanding of the Muslim life. Christians, if, if someone asks you, what does a Christian life look like? I think, honestly, for how many of us, what place would fasting be on the list as you describe the Christian life? And, and honestly, for how many of us, fasting would even make the list at, like, at all when you're describing the Christian life? Um, I think Jesus here is not an exhaustive list by any means, but Jesus, as he's thinking through what actions his disciples are going to do as they, live their Christian, as, they, as they live their Christian lives. For Jesus, as he's thinking through it, the first, the three things that come to his mind are giving, that his disciples are going to give, that his disciples are going to pray, and that his disciples are going to fast. Um, just really quickly, um, so having said all that, it would seem that Jesus' disciples did not fast because as you jump forward by about three chapters in Matthew chapter 9, um, some, other, some, other, some other disciples come to him and say, Jesus, how come your disciples don't fast? We're fasting. How come your, your disciples aren't fasting? And, and, and he tells them, you can't fast at a wedding. No one fasts at, at a wedding. But so when I'm here, 
can't fast at a wedding, but the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. And honestly, this is going to be the main part, the main thrust of our sermon this morning, that we fast because the bridegroom is not here. We fast because Jesus is not here. We fast because we're still waiting for the day that we get to finally be with Jesus completely. And honestly, we see it in in the life of the disciples. Jesus says, you know, when my disciples are with me, that's great. But as soon as I go away, they're going to fast. And then, and, and then we see it in the life of disciples in, in the church of Acts. After Jesus goes away, um, it says that uh, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, so, so this is Acts after Jesus has gone away, while they, the church, um, some of his disciples, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they sent them off. So we see it, his disciples, they weren't fasting, but then as soon as Jesus goes away, um, they, um, they start to fast together. Um, and so, just want to talk about, well, okay, I guess fasting is in the Bible. Jesus expects us to fast. What's the point? Why do we, why should we fast? Because honestly, if you kind of think about it, it might seem a little bit cruel. Like God wants us to starve ourselves. God wants us to, like, yeah, so why fasting in general? <laughs> uh, so um, I, I think first, I want to point us towards some scriptures um, that we find in the Psalms. And I think these scriptures specifically are about the words that God's people use when they're praying and they're talking about how they feel about God and how they long for God. I want to point us to these scriptures from Psalm 42. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs after you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? From Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And I think my argument from these is that this is not an accident. These words that the psalmist is using, as a deer pants for streams of water, my soul longs, my soul thirsts for the living God. My God, earnestly I seek and my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. The way that the psalmist uses, and it's not just in these, it's all throughout the psalms about them thirsting after God, them hungering after God. And then, of course, right before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, as he's quoting from the Old Testament, he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I think I want to show us that there is a physical world and a spiritual world. And there's physical experiences that we go through and spiritual realities. And God made the world and physical experiences that we go through, they point to spiritual realities that we can't see. And so... I think it's really God saying, how often do we need to eat in a given day, in a given week? I mean, maybe we can go, you know, a day without food. But in general, like as, as humans, we need to eat every single day, more or less. And just thinking through, God designed our body. Why did God design it that way? What happens when we don't eat? We start to grow weak. We start to grow 
we need food and we need um, we need that sus- that we need that sustenance to sustain us. What, what happens? What happens when you don't eat? You feel hungry, and what does that hunger feel like? It feels awful. I hate being hungry. It hurts, and it's like someone crying out saying, "I need food." And says God, especially in that Matthew four verse, saying, "Bread," which is equating how we need bread and how we need the Word of God, and just combining them, saying. Just like your body needs food, your spirit needs the word of God, needs to be with God. That hunger that you feel when you don't eat food, that's what your spirit feels when you're not being fed by the word of God. What happens when you don't go a day without food? You're really weak and you're really tired. That's what your soul is like when it's without food. And it's really just the physical experiences that we go through pointing towards the spiritual realities. And so when it comes to fasting, I mean, how often of spiritual reality is so hard because it's something that we can't see. And to, and to be honest, it's something that I think we as people tend to forget all the time because we, because we don't see it as kind of invisible. It's in the background. We, we don't see it. Um, I think it's really a lot like uh, if I can give us this example, I think in a lot of ways it's like, um, if you can imagine with me a father, a father who has a son, young son, and the father loves the son, and so the father buys his son the best toys. He says, son, I love you. Here's all these toys. And then the son, super thankful, sees the toys, super happy. I mean, that's a good day. But if you can imagine with me that the son then takes all the toys and then he goes up into his room, closes the door, plays with his toys, and never talks to his father again, never sees his father again. I mean, I'm not a parent, and I don't have a son, but I think I can imagine that as a parent, that would be one of the most devastating things, that you give your son gifts, and then your young son just goes and plays with the gifts and closes the door, never sees you and talks to you again. And I think in fasting, this is our world that God has given us so many gifts in this world. He's given us great food, great drink, great gifts. But I think just in so many ways, we forget about God at oftentimes. We're like the child that is just so busy playing with the toys that we neglect to spend time with the Father. So I would submit to you that I think perhaps for that son, what might be good for the son would be to, at times, put down his toys and go spend quality time with his father. Not that the toys are bad or that playing is bad, but occasionally to put those down, to go spend quality time with his father, to go and hug his father, go and see his father face to face. So fasting for us at times is temporarily setting aside good things that God has given us because we want to spend that quality face-to-face time with God. Because we know that these things in this world can distract us, make us forget about how much we love God and how much we need God. Um, And so as we go through this passage, um, as we make our way through this passage, Jesus, he gives us some examples of as we do fast and as disciples fast, how should we not fast? And so uh, as we make our way through the passage, he says, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, 
for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. And I think for one, you, you kind of have to imagine what that looked like. I mean, first, they were looking gloomy. It says, do not disfigure their faces. And I think you really do have to take a second and think about what that looked like, disfiguring their faces. I mean, were they just walk, uh, were the, the people that were fasting in that day, were they just walking around just like, no, just like disfiguring their faces? That's at least what I picture in my mind when they're disfiguring their faces. For the scholars, as they look at this passage, they suspect that for the Pharisees, for the people that were fasting as a show, that they would take ash and soot and dirt and purposely put it on their face so that the face would just be caked in dirt and ash and soot. Perhaps as a way of symbolizing that, because especially in that day, fasting was so associated with repenting and mourning that perhaps for the Pharisees that they were so in mourning over, over, over their sin, that they were on their knees crying out to God. Their face was, plant, uh, their face, they were face down in the dirt, tears streaming down, and that the wetness from the tears was mixing with the dirt and was just caked onto their face. So when, when they see them, wow, that's a person that has just been fasting and mourning and repenting. But they would just, just put that on their face just as a show. And then they would also say that, they suspect that for, on top of doing that, they would also put on, old raggedy clothes, um, clothes, clothes that had just been around, um, also covered in dirt, and maybe they smelled a bit, but it's kind of like what the crowd had been seeing from, from people that were taking fasting really seriously. And Jesus is saying, well, when you fast, as disciples, when you fast, don't do that. This is how I don't want you to fast. Instead, how I want you to fast is... Um, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, uh, but by your Father who is in secret. And so Jesus wants us to anoint our head and to wash our face. And so anointing does have ceremonial connotations, like kings would be anointed and priests would be anointed. But so anointing does have like a special connotation, but also in that day, it was also a very common day occurrence. So in, in that day, they wouldn't take a lot of showers or baths, but ceremony, cere- um, just throughout the day, they would wash their hands, they would wash their feet, and occasionally they would put a, a little bit of oil on their head. Um, it's a little bit of maintenance, but it's also because the oil that they used was olive oil. Um, generally, and in general, olive oil smells good. It smelled kind of good. Um, that was just kind of just their daily maintenance and upkeep. And so when Jesus says anoint your head, you know, is he talking about the ceremonial, be like a king? But I think it's probably just talking about the everyday, how they would just pour a little bit of oil on their head because, you know, back then there was no shampoo, no head, no head, no head and shoulders, you know, no dove, right? They, they got some, ol- some olive oil, and that's what they were using. So he's probably talking about just like their everyday anointing their head because he combines it with and wash your face, which was also um, a pretty common occurrence. So for us, does Jesus want us to put oil on our heads? Um, I think for us, in our context, he's saying, essentially he's saying the equivalent of when you fast, take a shower and put on deodorant, Right? 
Um, and this isn't, you know, a sermon on hygiene, but, you know, I would say that's, in general, a, a good idea. Uh, but in saying all this, I want to talk about what is Jesus' point here? Why does he want us to fast like this? And why does he not want us to fast the other way? And I want to say that Jesus' real point here is about hypocrisy. And first, I just want us to feel the weight of Jesus' words for a bit. When he says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. First off, this is the third time now that he's mentioned it. When he said, when you give, don't be like the hypocrites. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Saying it again, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. And I think just the more and more I read that, that the weight of those words just hits me a lot. You know, he doesn't say, you know, if you fast like the Pharisees are doing, your actions may appear hip- hypocritical to some. Just be careful about how you come off. You know, that might seem a bit hypocritical, so to speak. He just calls them, don't be like the hypocrites. That's, it's heavy. And this also isn't the, the only time that he talks about hypocrisy. In fact, I would say next to Jesus talking about money, that this is one of the top three things that Jesus talks about over and over and over, and over again about hypocrisy. All throughout the book of Matthew um, and in the Gospels, comes up again and again and again. And then it kind of all culminates in Matthew chapter 23, right towards the end of the sermon, I'm uh, sorry, um, right towards the end of his ministry. One of his last words, um, he talks in depth about hypocrisy. And it's really just the entire chapter. Um, and and it's not all the verses from there, but this is just where he just talks about hypocrisy to the culmination of everything that he feels about hypocrisy. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, also wickedness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and selfishness. And that's just, I think that's something like 150 words there. The whole chapter is close to 800 words where he just talks on and on about hypocrisy. And I think you just get a sense. Hypocrisy was a big deal. And I think it just leads to a question of why is hypocrisy such a big deal to God? Why is hypocrisy such a big deal to Jesus? Why does it burden his heart so much? Hypocrisy. And I think if I can have you imagine, if I can have you imagine with me for a second that, yeah, if I can have you imagine with, with me for a second that there is a woman Let's say she's married to a man. She's married, she's married to her husband. And let's say she's at home, and her husband comes home with a bouquet of flowers, a beautiful bouquet of flowers. I mean, that's beautiful. That's romantic. That's a great gesture. And let's say that every week for an entire year, he comes home with a new bouquet of flowers for his wife. And I think for a lot of us, we say, what a great husband, right? That's 
great romantic gesture, well, that's, you know, good on him. But what if the woman were to find out that for, what if the woman were to find out that while the husband was at the flower shop buying flowers for his wife, that he was actually at the flower shop with another woman that he was committing adultery on her with. And while he was, that while he was buying flowers with his wife, he was actually there with another woman buying flowers for her as well. I mean, honestly, could you imagine a more devastating scenario, a more devastating thing to discover or find out? I mean, I think ad adultery in general is devastating. Um, it's awful. But I think it's one thing to, and I don't want to make light of that at all, but I think it's one thing to commit adultery and then immediately feel repentant and sorrowful, deeply remorseful, immediately go to your significant other, beg for forgiveness, beg for reconciliation, express just how deeply broken you are. I'll say, and that's still awful, awful scenario. I think that's one thing. But I would say it's a completely, I'll say it's another thing to, for an entire year, to have done all the acts of love for your wife all, every single week, bringing bouquets of flowers to your wife, having the image of a good husband, on the outside, loving your wife well, but then the whole time that you were doing that, you were actually committing adultery the entire time. Actions were good, but the actions were tainted because the husband was loving someone else. And for the Pharisees, their actions were good. Them fasting twice a week, fasting all the time, their actions were saying, I love God deeply. This is an act of worship. This is an act of love. But in their act that says, I love God, their hearts are saying, I love something else, actually. I love the praise of other people, how people view me, what people think when they see me. That's who I actually love. And I think the more I think about it, I think I still far off, but I think I understand why this is so awful. It's one of the worst sins in God's eyes, the sin of hypocrisy. And I want to give us a sneak peek into the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So this is in the next chapter, in Matthew chapter 7. We'll talk about this in, in, in a couple of weeks. But right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the last things that Jesus says is, um, he says that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in, in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And like I think in our modern day context, we can really read this passage, read those words and say, and just think of ourselves, Lord, did we not preach in your name? Did we not pray prayers, say, in Jesus' name? Did we not do really good works? Did we not evangelize? Did we not plant new churches? Did we not go on mission trips? Did we not go out and reach the city? Did we not do all these good things? And I think what strikes me about this passage is that Jesus, he doesn't say that 
those actions weren't good. You shouldn't have done those things. Those were bad actions. You shouldn't have done those things. I think Jesus, he says, what he points to is, he says, I never knew you. It's not that the actions were bad. It's not that going to small groups, going to church, planting new churches, that these are bad things. I think Jesus says, what he points to is that I never knew you. That it's not about the actions, but I never knew you. And I think in this passage, um, and what Jesus has been talking about so far um, in giving, praying, and fasting is an invitation to come and get to know the Father and come and get to know me. If we can go to the next slide, um, I think this is the reward that Jesus is talking about. He says, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. And I think that reward is kind of built into that last sentence there. Your Father will reward you. He says, your Father. I think just that first word, your, it's just such a personal thing. Your Father. Your Father. And I think first... I mean, the, the imagery of Father was used in the Old Testament, but not as often as Jesus is using it. And I think it's an invitation into fast, he's, you know, I'll come and get to know the Father. When you fast secretly, when no one else sees, when you're just fasting, and the only people that know are just you and God, and that's it, and it's just you two, you get to know him. There's a relationship there. And, and I think, you know, it's not a formula. Like, oh, like if we do these things, oh, if we give in secret, you know, if we pray in secret, if we fast in secret, that's. <laughs> yeah, I think these are not like, give me one second. <laughs> okay, let's restart here. Yeah, so I think it's not a formula, right? I don't think Jesus is saying, Oh, if you follow these steps, if you anoint your head, wash your face, you get a relationship with God and you get to go to heaven. Just follow, just follow these steps, you'll be good. I think it's Jesus showing us an invitation to get to know the Father. This is our reward. And I think just in the context of the Sermon on the Mount so far, I think you can really see that. I think you can really finish that sentence in a lot of ways, that your Father will reward you. Yeah, that your father will reward you, you know, by being your father. Your father will reward you. Um, we'll talk about it next week, but your father will reward you with a with a treasure that is better than and that with a treasure that is better than any, anything. Ooh, this world can offer. <laughs> yes, and so I just want to you know, just give us an invitation, just a call. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Yeah, just a call to fast in secret and get to know the Father. The reward, the reward is there. Um, and so just, so just with all those calls to fasting, those rewards, you know, what we get in fasting, I think, I think, um, sorry, I just have some practical considerations for us to think about. Um, so I want us to fast. You know, as church, I want us to 
get to know the Father in secret um, through fasting. So uh, there's some practical considerations for us as we think about fasting. I think just first off, pray for a hungry heart. Um, I, think, I think that's really the first step. Pray for the heart of the psalmist that says, my flesh longs and thirsts for God. My flesh faints for God. Maybe you're, you're not quite there. Maybe your heart doesn't long after God, or maybe it's been a while since you've really felt that. And so I would just encourage you that, you know, if you're not quite there, um, to pray for a heart. Just start there. I think secondly, uh, make a plan to fast. Um, because I think, um, well, one, I think if you don't make a plan, I think it can be pretty hard to fast. Uh, I think probably days, months, years will probably go, go by. It'll, it'll just kind of reside in, in your head as a good idea. Because um, I think as I think about that, uh, for how many of us um, who are in relationships or have been in relationships, married, and so on, um, how many, many of us are planners? You know, like planned dates. You know, like on March 12th, we're going to go on a date. I'm going to pick you up at 6.30. I'm going to get there at 7.00. I'm going to wear this, you know, um, we like plan dates, we like to look forward to things. But also, you don't have to raise your hand, but for how many of us, we're more spontaneous. We just like, don't like all this planned dates, the planned, you know, things in, in the head, but you're just more spontaneous. Just wake up and be like, you know, in the constant context of a relationship, let's go on a trip, let's go hiking, let's go something. And I think I'd say, I think both are good. Like I think plans are good and spontaneous is good. But you probably need both. I think even for the most spontaneous couple, I think at the very least you have one, at least one built-in date, probably on your anniversary, like your wedding anniversary. Let's say no matter how spontaneous you are, you at least have one planned date out of the year, right? And then hopefully you have more with birthdays and Valentines um, and so on. Um, and so in terms of making a plan, um, just want to give us just very just practical suggestions um, for that you don't have to follow, but I just think it's good wisdom. Um, just submitted to you for your consideration. For the Jewish people, they fasted as a whole nation at the very least one time a year on the Day of Atonement. And we're not under Jewish law. Uh, we have our atonement in Jesus. But I think there's a lot of wisdom there that... Um, I think there's a lot of wisdom there, so I would submit to you, consider taking, choose a day, um, and say, you know what, on every single, on this day, every single year, I want to set apart that day for fasting. Uh, this is something that um, the, my last church that um, we had done at the beginning of each year, to set apart the beginning of each year for fasting. And you know, by God's grace, that's something that I want to continue on um, for the rest of my life that the beginning part of each year I just wanted to set that apart for fasting also very practically I do want to challenge us consider fasting this upcoming week I, I, I would say in God's providence we're going through the Sermon on the Mount I think it's God's providence that we come upon a passage on fasting and I would say if you're thinking about when should I fast I would probably say the week that we come on a a passage on fasting, it's probably a good time to consider fasting, especially if you've never done it before, it's been a while. Consider taking a day to speak, fast a meal, fast longer than a meal, fast a whole day. Um, I'll leave it up to you. Um, consider, 
fasting for prayer requests. Um, and so I think we're blessed to be in a church where we share li- our lives with each other. We share prayer requests with one another. And I, I just want to share this uh, story about, I never knew, but I would have a friend. He would often text me, how can I be praying for you? And specifically, he would always ask me, is there anyone in your life that you're currently reaching out to that you want to share the gospel with? Someone who doesn't know Jesus, but someone that you're reaching out to. Like, how, how can I be praying for them? He, he never told me, but I'm convinced. And I, I could be wrong, but I'm convinced that he would regularly, after I would text him back, he would regularly set aside meal times like a lunch or a dinner, and, and instead of having lunch, he would just set aside that time and pray for the, the request that I had shared with him. And, of course, I never knew, but just got the sense that, <laughs> that he was. And honestly, I was um, so blessed by that. Um, and I, I think we see this on mission trips as well. Um, I remember, like, when, like, as a church, we would send out teams to go out in the mission field, Sometimes we'd receive, like, an email update. Sometimes those requests would be kind of crazy because, I don't know, like, things happen on the mission field, especially on short-term teams. And I, and I still remember, like, one message that I had received. Like, the subject said, please pray for us, right? And then in the subject, or, like, in, in, in the body, it says, our team, everyone, is, everyone has pink eyes. We have two people in the hospital, People are just struggling with really dark thoughts right now. And can you please fast for us? And I, I think um, I would love for us as a church to get to a, a, a place where that's like not like a weird request, but that like fasting is like a normal, you know, it's part of our church culture where like that's not like a weird um, like request. Um, and so also in my consideration, like, challenge for us to consider fasting this week. We have a mission team right now that that, uh, that Pastor Robert had shared about. Five of our members are currently um, on a short-term trip um, on called Beach Reach, and they don't have to know. Like, you you don't have to tell them. You don't have to tell them, oh, we are fasting for you, right? But I'll say, without them even knowing, I'll encourage us to fast secretly no one else knows, the team doesn't know, but just between you and God, and consider fasting and praying that God would really be with them on that trip. Um, some other consi- uh, practical considerations, consider fasting for transitional seasons, and I kind of just get this from the examples that we see in the Bible. That Jesus, before he starts his public ministry, he spends a season in, in fasting and praying before the church in Acts, before, you know, it's a big transitional time, they fasting and praying. There's more examples, but consider, con- consider fasting for transitional seasons. Are you between jobs right now? You know, are you about to start a new job? Are you considering a move? Um, are you considering, like, a season? I think it's just it's something that we see in the Bible. Um, I remember I had a friend who was in a relationship with a godly woman, and he was praying through... God, you know, is this the woman that you want me to marry? Like, the woman that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with? And he was considering, like, should I propose? You know, God, do you want me to propose marriage to her? And I just remember, like, him 
um, asking me in person, hey, um, for this upcoming week, would you fast with me? I, I want to spend this week in fasting. Would, would you spend, um, for the next five days, um, during lunch, would you fast with me as I pray through this decision of if I should propose to her? So honestly, I think engage proposing in marriage is probably one of the biggest decisions they'll make in their life. And I think it's probably a good idea to, <laughs> you know, fast and pray over that huge decision. Um, also, some practical considerations. Practice wisdom. Um, so I think, one, if you're struggling with um, an eating disorder, um, you have health concerns, health issues, anything, um, yeah, anything like that, um, you don't have to be a hero for Jesus. There's like real, you know, things that would preclude you from fasting. Fasting isn't limited to food itself. Uh, fasting is just that heart of trying to remind our body that um, we need Jesus. Things as well that would take us away, but we need Jesus. Um, so practice wisdom. Also, um, maybe you hear the sermon and you say, Moses fasted for 40 days. Jesus fasted for 40 days. I want to be like Jesus and be holy. I'm, I'm going to fast for 40 days. Let's say before considering a really long fast or a really, yeah, just a more arduous fast, consider first talking to Pastor Robert. Um, just ask him, you know, and y'all can pray through together, you know. Is this what God, because I don't doubt that maybe God will call you to a longer fast, but consider if it's going to be something serious, consider bringing in other counsel who can pray with you before you just start on a 40-day fast uh, or something like that. And also talk to a doctor as well. Um, we want you to be safe. Um, yeah, be, yeah, we want you to be safe. Um, fasting for Jesus. Um, consider other types of fasting. So um, there's food, there's drink, but you know there's other things in this world that um, maybe you want to fast from the news, media, social media, um, and entertainment, whatever it is, exercise. I mean, there are good things that the world has given us, um, that, sorry, that God has given us. There are honestly good things to be enjoyed. We can start to take up an improper place in our hearts. We start to love something too much and our hearts are fickle. And so it could be a good idea to just um, say, consider other types of fasting. But in that, I, I would suggest, um, consider actually fasting from food. Because um, like definitely, I'm all for fast from social media, fast from entertainment, fast from X, Y, and Z. But I would really strongly consider, if you're able to, like really consider fasting from food. Definitely when you fast from food, it's a very physical experience that you go through. Your body hurts, and it hungers after God, and it's just a whole experience. Um, your body cries out, and I think that is, is, is an experience that God has kind of given us a show what our spirits are like. And then um, just lastly, be with Jesus. So if you're going to fast, I want to say this is probably the most in, important part, is if you're just fasting for the sake of it, I mean, that's just willpower, and that's just, I don't know life of like stoicism or whatnot. But, you know, if, if you were going to, you know, not eat lunch 
for a day. Use that time to pray. Use that time to secretly give. Like, maybe use that time to pray to God, who do you want me to give to? Um, who do you want me to be generous to? Be with Jesus. Maybe it looks like journaling, you know, like taking a walk with God um, and so on. And so just as we close, um, I just want to close with just a handful of verses for us. Uh, so from Second Corinthians 5, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And the next, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Um, and lastly, from Second Timothy, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And I think just as we close, I think I just want to mention that I think in the process of falling away, I don't think it happens in one big decision. It does happen, but I, I don't think it often happens where someone great attends church, loves God, worships Jesus, and then the next day wakes up saying, I renounce my faith. I'm done. I think what's much more common is slowly the world, I mean, there's lots of great things that the world has to offer. Relationships, marriage, great gifts that God gives us, children, jobs, security, entertainment, um, the news and things that are going on, other issues that kind of pull at our hearts. I think a big one, and one that Cooper will talk about next week, is money, um, the love of money or the pursuit of money. Those things, before we even realize it, we realize, or before we even realize that our heart actually loves all of these other things. And I just want to close by saying that I think the world has a lot of pleasures that are great, a lot of great things to offer, but I think for those of us who have discovered it, a relationship with God is better than all of those things. And I think specifically in fasting, I think there are facets to a relationship with God, aspects to a relationship with God that can only be discovered through the practice of fasting. Things in a relationship that you discover through fasting. And yeah, I, I think as I was just thinking, I think I was just thinking about, you know, like the, yeah, like when I die and go to heaven and I go and meet God, I think I really want to, I think one, I want to recognize him. Like just when I see him, I feel like, oh, like you're the one that I've been praying to this whole time. You're the one that my heart has been longing for. I think when I see him, I don't want to feel like even a little bit homesick for earth. I think when I see God, I want to be the fulfillment of everything I've been wanting for. And while we're on this earth, um, I, I do want to just close by just encouraging us to voluntarily at times give up good things that God has given us, specifically food as well as other things. Remind our souls 
um, and our bodies that we weren't made for this world. We're still waiting for the day that we can be with Jesus. Um, still waiting for that day. This is not our home. We're still exiles, sojourners, um, and so on. Um, and so as we close, um, we come to the table, um, to the bread and the cup. And this is the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. And he said, as he went with them, that this is my body broken for you. Eat and remember. So this is my blood poured out for you. Drink and remember. So um, as we go into a time of communion, I think first, if you're not a believer yet, I, I want to encourage you to um, re- remain in your seat and just consider um, just the things that were, talk- that were talked about. Um, there are a lot of pleasures in this world. We constantly get hungry, but we constantly need to eat. We're never quite satisfied. Maybe perhaps we were made for something more that will fill us for eternity. Um, if you are a believer, um, I want to encourage us that when you're ready, come and take the bread um, and the juice. And for the, uh, the bread and the juice that we have here, they're really small. It's a really small piece, and it's a really small cup. It's not going to fill you. If you haven't had lunch yet, this is going to be really, really small. It's not going to fill you. And so I just want to encourage you, as you sit, eat and drink. And it's not going to fill your physical desires, but eat and remember Jesus. Like it says, man does not live on bread alone, but but by God. Eat and remember Jesus, who we were made for. Um, And so um, whenever you are ready, uh, Pastor Robert, if you could come and, um, and help me. Um, yeah, when you're ready, uh, if you can come uh, to the front um, and take of communion. And then, uh, yeah, as you sit down, remember Jesus, who we were made for. And then have a time of prayer, and then we'll close out with worship.